thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Hopefully your Bibles are still open to the book of Philemon. If it's not, open it up to Philemon. As, uh, as Pancho read verses 1 through 14, for all of us, we started last week, Samuel led us through verses 1 through 7, and then today we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. The reason why we're stopping at verse 14, it's kind of in the middle of a thought, is because really verse 15 and 16, um, and Samuel and I, as we were kind of talking about this, this letter, verse 15 and 16 really are, we would, we would argue, the anchor of this letter. If you look at this with me, Paul says to Philemon in verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And we really want to look at that concept next week of, 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 of what it means to really be brothers in Christ, not just spiritually speaking in the spirit, but also in the flesh, the, the, real, the real world implications of having the kind of attitude that Philemon is, in, is being encouraged by Paul to have. But today, what I want to talk about and as Francisco read for us, I want to start by having you all do something that I do often, repeating after me, but I want all of you to, to say this question together, and I mean it. Every one of you say this question together. Everybody say, am I useful? That's a very confrontational question to truly introspectively ask yourself. Am I a useful person? The way you answer this question might be determined by all sorts of factors, maybe by uh, the amount of money that you have in your bank account. Maybe it's determined by the amount of money in your bank account for retirement. I think money in our bank accounts might determine usefulness in a lot of our own hearts and minds. Maybe you're looking at it in terms of how big of an impact that you're making when it comes uh, to doing good things in the world. Maybe you're looking at it in terms of how successful of a husband or, or a wife or a father or a mother or a, a family member. Maybe you're looking at it in terms of how successful or you are in your career, not necessarily in how much money you're making, but how well you're doing your job. And certainly these are all, um, I would say, side effects. They're all results of what a useful person might have present in their life. Not that you always will. But what we'll look at today as we look at this letter that Paul was writing to Philemon, we'll look at, at the real reason that would, that would dictate to us where our usefulness ought to be anchored in. And I would argue that apart from this dynamic, which we'll talk about, I will argue that apart from this dynamic being present and prevalent in your life, you would be far-fetched. You would not really be able to say with a whole lot of confidence that you are a useful person as far as the Word of God would argue. So to restate, 
Um, I read verse 15 and, and 16, and if you don't really know the context of this, of this letter, you don't really know exactly why verse 15 and verse 16 would be the anchor or one of the main verses, if not the key verse in this passage. So if you were here with us last week, we discussed that uh, Philemon is a letter written from Paul to a wealthy and prominent man in the city of Colossae. Paul had never met the church in Colossae. He had met individuals from Colossae, but he had never actually been there, at least during his ministry. Ephesus, was, which is about 100 miles east of Colossae, is where Paul did spend an extended amount of time, a little over two and a half years. And so when Paul was in Ephesus, it's likely that this is where he developed friendships with people um, that did have a close relationship with the, with the Colossian church. Um, one of these people was Epaphras. We can read about him. You can read about him in several, at least in a couple of Paul's letters. And though, like I said, Paul had never been to visit the church in Colossae, Epaphras was a close companion of Paul because he spent an extended amount of time with Paul when Paul was in Ephesus. And Epaphras was from Colossae. Paul actually sent Epaphras there uh, to bring the gospel along to two other cities which are in that area, to Laodicea, which we'll actually talk about this church in Laodicea briefly at the end of our time this morning, and to another place in the, in the Hierapolis, which is really close to Laodicea. And so Epaphras was, was commissioned and sent by Paul from Ephesus to go to Colossae and to be a part of planting the church there. And Philemon, as we learned last week, was a wealthy and a prominent man. We know that he was wealthy and prominent. When we read verses 1 through 3, we, we looked at this as, as, as Francisco read the passage for us earlier. But the church in Colossae actually met in the home of Philemon. In verse 2, that's where we read about that. Aphia and Archippus, a lot of people think that Aphia was Philemon's wife and Archippus was Philemon and, 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 uh, Philemon and Aphia's son, we see that this is a letter that, that Paul is writing to a household concerning a very important issue that needs to be addressed and taken care of in order to, to set a precedent at large for the church in Colossae. And we, we mentioned this last week, but in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, we read this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus. Everyone say Onesimus. In our time today, um, in verses 8 through 14, if you were paying attention, and we'll read it again, but if you were paying attention when Pancho read the first 14 verses, in 8 through 14, Onesimus is certainly the main person in view, and he really, I would, I would argue, is the main anchor and topic of conversation in the text that we're looking at today, and we see him mentioned here in Colossians 4, verse 8. So he sends Tychicus so that the church in Colossae would know about how they're doing, and I'll give some insight into that here in a moment. But look what he says about him. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. 
They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. If you were here last week, maybe you caught this when the context was being shared with us, but Paul is writing this letter from Rome. Paul is in his first uh, Roman imprisonment. He's He's in house arrest in Rome, and he's allowed to take visitors, but during his time there, he writes all of his, what we would refer to as his epistle, or prison epistles, or his prison letters. He writes a letter to the church in Philippi, he writes, he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. He writes a letter to the church in Colossae. And then he writes this personal letter to Philemon and his household. And then Tychicus, who's with him in his Roman imprisonment, one of the many who surely over the couple of years that Paul was in uh, his Roman imprisonment under house arrest, Tychicus was one of the brothers who was there to help minister to Paul and help meet any of his needs as he was confined, probably chained uh, all, at all times in some way, she performed to a Roman guard. They would probably go out in shifts. And, and Paul was, was confined to stay under house arrest. Though he could have visitors, he couldn't go do anything couldn't work and do anything like that. So there's people who came and tended to his needs. Tychicus was one of these brothers. And as we learned last week, Onesimus is another, is another one of these brothers. If you jump ahead, uh, look at verse 18 in Philemon chapter 1, or starting verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him, talking about Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say anything of your owing me, even your own self. So the context clues give us insight. There was some sort of interaction that took place between Philemon and Onesimus that caused a break. Now, it's important, if you don't know this already, to know the kind of uh, interactions that Onesimus had with Philemon. As we mentioned earlier, Philemon was a wealthy and prominent man in the city of Colossae. The church met in his home. But another important detail to mention that we mentioned last week, would have it mentioned yet today, is that Onesimus was, in fact, one of Philemon's slaves, this is another indicator to, to, to tell us the kind of prominent man that Philemon was. He was wealthy enough to have a home where a church of about 50 people could meet, and he was wealthy enough to hold slaves. If you were here last week, we talked um, extensively about the whole dynamic of slavery in the first century. Uh, slavery was, in the first century, it consisted of about a third of the population of people that were part of the Roman Empire. And it was... Oftentimes, slavery was often a horrible dynamic for people to be in. And it was as we think about slavery in our own uh, nation's history, it was people who had slaves and they were considered, the slaves were considered the property of the people who were holding and, and, and owning, is an appropriate word, the people who owned those slaves. And so there was a lot of laws in the Roman Empire that dealt with this whole dynamic and institution of slavery. A lot of people would actually enter into slavery if they didn't have uh, the kinds of means available to them and they could go to a wealthy slave owner, plantation owner, whatever, and, and give themselves to servitude. And for them and their family, they would, they would be the property of the slave owner unless if they were able to somehow pay them back over time. And as long as they were their slaves, they would be protected and have all of their needs provided for but still slaves nonetheless. Onesimus and Philemon 
had this kind of interaction relationship with each other. Now, we don't get a whole lot of insight into the type of slave that Onesimus was. There's context clues. We don't get a whole lot of insight into the type of slave owner that Philemon was. There's context clues. But what we do know is that something happened which led to Onesimus leaving Philemon escaping, running away from being in, in the place where he was supposed to be, which is a slave of Philemon. A lot of people have, have talked about why did Onesimus do this? Was it because Philemon was a, a, a harsh and an unhealthy and, and, a, and, a, and a rude and a mean slave owner? This could be the reason why in, in the letter to the Colossians, Paul mentions the dynamic about relationships between masters and slaves. Who knows? As we just read in verses 17 through 19, it could be that, that Paul is saying, hey, anything that he owes you, charge it to my account because maybe, uh, maybe Onesimus stole something from Philemon. He didn't like the fact of his condition or his situation in life. I'm a slave and I don't like the fact that this is my situation and so I'll try to steal something from Philemon that can maybe be to my benefit, that can profit me, and then I'm gonna run away and escape somewhere where I can try to start and live a new life. Again, we don't have much insight into this, but the important thing is what we do have is a letter from Paul who has a renewed kind of relationship with Philemon because of something very significant that happened in his life, and we'll talk about that. And the result is, 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 is Paul saying, Philemon, please receive Onesimus. Do this for me. And my argument... I believe the, the passage's argument is the reason why Paul was so adamant about this. The reason why when Paul sent Tychicus and Onesimus to take a letter to the church publicly, but also took a letter to Philemon privately, the reason why Paul was so focused on this city that he had never even been to before is because he knew that the way that Philemon would respond to this charge from Paul would set it would set a temperament, it would set a dynamic, it would set a precedent for the whole church concerning how brothers and sisters in Christ ought to interact with each other. Are you following me? So we'll talk about that more next week. But today what I want to, what I want to focus on in verses 8 through 14 is this little play on words that Paul uses to charge us let the scriptures, I'd say, to let the scriptures charge us to be the kind of person that would be characterized as useful. So let's all say it again together. Am I useful? Ready? One, two, three. Am I useful? Well, I hope so. I think it's fair to say that at different seasons and in different circumstances, we all find ourselves useful. And then there's all, all of us in here, Paul says this in, to the church in Philippi, I've not already obtained my goal, but I make it my aim and I continue to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Again, that's one of the prison letters. So this was on the, 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 the latter part of Paul's life after doing so much ministry. Paul says, I haven't arrived at the goal. So I think it's fair for every single one of us in here to say that there's still, at least in part, usefulness that ought to be addressed, uselessness rather, that there's uselessness that ought to be addressed in each and every one of our lives. And I think that the way that Paul appeals to Philemon very pointedly will address any uselessness that we see in us. Let's start in verse 8 with each other. 
Well, let's start in verse 7 just to sort of set up the context. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the, hear, the, hearts, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, verse 8, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. It's an important first point to make that Paul is not commanding Philemon to do this. He is appealing to Philemon on the basis of love and for the sake of the kingdom. He's appealing to Philemon to do this. I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, some of your versions might say an aged man, some of your versions might say an ambassador. It's interesting, the word that's used right there for older aged man and an ambassador, there's just one Greek letter that, and they look very similar to each other, that depending on which letter was originally written, it could mean an ambassador, but most, most manuscripts say old man or aged man, which is more likely Paul is saying at the end of my life, towards the in, last part of my life, I'm not, I'm not really wanting to beat around the bush here. I'm going to give it to you straight. I could command you to do this because that's the authority and position that I've been given um, by the Lord as far as being a leader in the church. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal to you. And who is it that he's appealing for? I appeal to you, verse 10, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, Paul um, had, in fact, taken advantage of his leadership in the church to give commands before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, Paul writes, When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, if you know anything about uh, the context of what was going on in the church of Corinth, there was, uh, the, the church in Corinth was a very gifted church, but it was a very unorderly church. Uh, they, had, they had a lot of zeal for the Lord, but they didn't have a whole lot of direction, good doctrine that made their practice very well. And some of that lack of doctrine even led to people in the church not just approving of or, 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 or sliding over, but even celebrating some historians and some historical artifacts might, might actually give us insight into that there was a relationship that was present amongst the Corinthians that not even, not even Gentiles, not even pagans would look at and see as acceptable. For there was a man who was committing some sort of an affair, who was having an affair with his stepmom. That's what was going on in the church in Corinth. And Paul is saying, like, this, this is not good. This is really bad. And, and when you read that letter, 1 Corinthians, he gives us insight that he had already written a previous letter. So really, 1 and 2 Corinthians are like the second and third letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And, and he alludes to this idea that it's already been addressed and they still haven't done anything about it. And originally, they weren't doing anything about it, and that wasn't good. And now, nothing has been done about it, and it's continuing to, to, to sow seeds in the congregation where they're actually condoning and accepting and maybe even celebrating this kind of thing. I mean, you, you think of that, and you're like, that's horrific, Drew. Well, raise your hand if you've ever heard the term, like, you know what, love is love. 
you should be able to love whoever you want to love. And has anyone ever heard a sentiment like that in our culture today? I mean, oh, come on, all of you should probably be raising your hands right now. We live in a culture where when we hear about things that we don't struggle with, we go, man, that's pretty bad. But if we stop and think about the kinds of things that have infiltrated the church in the last couple of decades, and really when we study history of the church over the last 2,000 years, we see that when people don't take a very dogmatic approach and what the scriptures are dictating to us, now I'm not saying that we dogmatically and, and, and belittlingly t- talk to people in a way that isn't loving or gentle, but I'm saying if we don't take a rigorous approach by, by listening to the word of God and applying it accordingly, these sorts of things will infiltrate the church. All you have to do is just Google bad sermons from people on YouTube and stuff like that, where these sorts of ideas have infiltrated the quote unquote church. And people are left in the pews hearing someone who's supposedly preaching from the word of God saying like, yeah, that sounds good to me. Amen. You should love whoever you want to love. Paul knows this is not good. And so he commands them. This person who's claiming to be a brother in Christ who has not repented and it's continued to go on and on and on and it's been addressed but there's been no sort of change, this person should be cast out of the fellowship of God. That's pretty hardcore, guys. If you've read Matthew chapter 18 before, Jesus says the exact same thing. If if your brother's in sin, take it to him. In private, if he doesn't respond, take two or three. If he still doesn't respond, take it to the church. If he still doesn't respond, do what? Treat that person like a non-believer. And look what Paul says at the end of verse 5. Do these things so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see when we don't address what ought to be addressed in each other's lives? We're cultivating an environment where we belittle sin. And not only are we belittling it, but we're making sin acceptable. And the danger of that is we might create an environment that we call church, that we call the kingdom of God, that we call the family of God or the, bar, or the body of, of Christ. But really, it's a place where we just have what Samuel talked about last week, last week moralistic, therapeutic deism. People who are, who, are, who are thinking that they're trying to do the right thing without really honoring God, and it's all based in what I say. This feels right to me, therefore it is. And so you have places that call themselves the body or the church or the community of believers, but really it's just people that are talking about ungodly sentiments, feeling good about themselves, but it's leading people to hell in a handbasket because they do not have the truth of the gospel. And so again, I say Paul didn't shy away from taking advantage of the opportunity to command things. And he says, I could do so if I wanted to. But in this situation, Philemon, because I know of the way that that you have refreshed the saints, I've heard of the fruitfulness from your life. Actually, look at verse 19 with me. Look what Paul says. "I, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I will say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This would suggest that Paul was involved in the salvation of Philemon, whether it was through... Epaphras, who he led to the Lord, and a lot of scholars believe that Philemon, being a wealthy, prominent, maybe businessman, was, maybe he would go to Ephesus, oftentimes there was a big, there was a big, uh, there was a big economy there for the slave trade in Ephesus, so maybe Paul met Philemon in Ephesus and led him to the Lord alongside Epaphras, who knows? But what Paul does say, and he's not afraid to, to bring this to his remembrance, is, hey, 
look, if, if there's anything that Onesimus has done to wrong you, just charge it to my account. And don't worry, I'm not going to hold the fact that you owe me your own life against you. So you see how he's, he's using some, some pretty good rhetorical devices here to, to appeal to Philemon, but he's doing it pretty convincingly. Look, I could command you, Philemon, but I won't. I could mention the fact that you're only saved because of me, but I'm not even going to use that, which he kind of does, you know, a little bit. But instead, what does he do? Well, I think what he does is he appeals to Philemon on the basis of his knowledge of what it means to be saved. Let's read this again. Verse 8 through 10. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner, also for Jesus Christ, for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. We love this. Last week we talked about the kinship language that's used throughout this whole book. Um, in verse one, Paul and Timothy, our brother. And then the second part of verse two, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And then in, in verse 2, Aphia, our sister and our fellow soldier. In verse 6, the word sharing, koinonia, is used. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. And now Paul continues to harp on this whole dynamic of family and kinship. And, and it's all anchored in the sake of what? Love. Everyone say love. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And he talks about how Onesimus has become his child in the faith. Look at verse 11. This is the, the play on words that Paul uses to, I think, put into focus what I think, what I, what I would argue is the main, uh, what's in main focus in this passage. But he says, formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Um, the, maybe y'all have uh, heard this before, but do y'all know what the name Onesimus means? Everyone say useful. His name means useful. Uh, it's really cool when you, when you get to study the word of God and, and, and you study the names of the people who are involved in the story and their names bear a lot of significance into uh, the narrative of whatever discourse we're discussing. Y'all guess, what, what do you think Philemon's name means? Philadelphia, what is that? What is this? The city of brotherly love. So Philemon's name literally means like a brother of love. And, and Paul is, is appealing to Philemon on the basis of being in the family of God. And he talks about Onesimus. He says, man, Onesimus, I know that he was useless to you. I know that useful wasn't very useful to you. But useful has become useful to me. Onesimus wasn't useful to you, but he has become useful to me. And so receive him on my, on my recommendation, on account of what I'm saying to you right now. Again, we don't know if Onesimus, was, if Onesimus leaving was based off of some dynamic of, of Philemon not being a slave owner. That, was, that would oftentimes be the case when slaves would escape. There is actually a Roman law that was very prevalent in Roman 
culture. And it's obvious when we look at this letter how Paul is appealing to Philemon that Paul is operating in accordance with this very ingrained cultural law concerning slavery. There was an ancient Greek law that, that stated this. It's, it's where we get our word asylum from, but the, the, word, the word in Greek and in Latin has asylum in it. But any, a, a slave, if they, left, if, if they left the household of whoever it was that they were enslaved by, they would be allowed to escape to a place of sanctuary. And in, in Roman law, what fell under the purview of sanctuary or an altar, as, as they called it back then, whatever, whatever fell under the purview of an altar, it became increasingly and increasingly more broad. So in all of these major Greek cities, there was all sorts of temples that were erected to the gods. And in each one of those temples, there would be some sort of a place in there, an altar where they could go to and they could seek out asylum. So if a, if a slave owner was, was, was approaching them and like chases them and they, they make it into one of these asylums, then whoever the head of that altar or that asylum was would, would be given the responsibility of doing a little bit of, of investigation to see the nature of why this person escaped. But then they would be left with some options. Depending on um, what their assessment was, the head of the sanctuary would be able to provide protection and then they would need to determine if their escaping slavery was an unjust or a just escape. If they were abused or if they were treated unfairly and they escaped justly, then that person could actually have their freedom awarded to them or they could choose to put themselves under slavery somewhere else, all sorts of options. Now, if the head of this altar or asylum determined that this escape was an unjust escape, they would also be left with some options. The, person, the head of this altar, or the head of, of this place, they would have the option to, to, one, either compel the slave to return back to their master's home, and they would be responsible for providing for all of their needs, um, protecting them. They would be responsible to do all of those things as long as they were in asylum at their altar and their sanctuary. And if they determined that it was a, an unjust escape, they could also do this. If the person refused to return back to their master, they couldn't... Uh, they couldn't just hand them over. That, that, would, that, would, that would violate the, the customs of asylum. And so that head could go to a slave trade place and then sell that person into slavery to somebody else, and then they would be responsible to give those funds to whoever it was that they escaped from so that the debt would be erased. A lot of people believe that that's maybe the dynamic that Paul was operating under for Onesimus. Who's to say? We can look into that more and more. But look at this with me. He could have taken advantage by commanding Paul to do this, to receive Onesimus as a brother. But rather, I'm going to appeal to you. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, but in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. It's almost as if Paul is saying, like, look, Philemon, I, I understand your rights that you have here. I understand your rights that you have here. And I, I've, I'm, ple I, I'm pleading with Onesimus to return to you. That's, that's, that's how I'm 
approaching my dynamic and leading Onesimus. I'm, I'm pleading that he sees that what he's done is wrong and that he returns to you. That's another situation. Whether or not you receive him or not, this is what I'm charging and appealing to Onesimus to do. I believe that we can assume that Onesimus had, al- had already resolved in his heart and mind, like, man, despite how Philemon receives me, I'm deciding to return to my master because I left, and I left in a way that wasn't good. I think we can assume that that's probably the nature in which Onesimus went. He didn't know how Philemon would respond, but he had already set his mind to go back no matter what with Tychicus to help him deliver the two letters. So Paul says, look, I understand what your rights are, and that's good and fine. And I could take advantage of, of this whole asylum thing. That I talked about how the, what fell under the purview of the, Ro- of, the, of the Roman Empire's idea of asylum, it continued to expand and expand and expand. And by the first century, a person's home uh, another, another slave owner or another prominent person or someone who is just deemed a leader, their home could be considered an altar or a place of asylum. And so certainly by the first century, this would have extended to a place like Paul, especially knowing Paul's uh, leadership and, and Paul's notoriety throughout the whole church. People would have vouched for him as a place of asylum. There was a place where an altar could be established for someone to seek asylum. And Paul says, look, I understand, I understand your rights, that's all good and fine, but I'm going to appeal to you not based off of the law and the kingdom of this earth, I'm going to appeal to you based off of relationship that ought to be present in the kingdom of heaven. And how does Paul refer to Onesimus? He calls him his child, refers to him as his father. In many of, of Paul's letters, he often uses this kind of language to describe the kind of relationship that he had with those who he led. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul talks about Timothy in this way. When Paul writes the, the pastoral epistles to Timothy, he calls him my dear child in the faith several times. He says the same thing to Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 14. He says it about Timothy in Corinth, and he also says it about the Corinthians. It's another place where he spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. He says it about the church in Galatia, about the Galatians in Galatians 4, verse 19, about the Ephesians. If you know the backstory about Paul's life, he was a single man, never had the opportunity to be married, and therefore never had any biological children. But he understood what we ought to understand, that in the kingdom of God, we're called to bear fruit and to make disciples. And when we do so, the people who we disciple that the Lord uses us to impact and lead to the Lord and disciple and continue, those are our children and the faith. And Paul says, Philemon, Onesimus has become my child in the faith. Formerly, he was useless to you. Why was he useless? Well, we could sit here and think about a number of reasons why he was useless, but in this context, I think a better question to ask is what made him useful? We sang about it. Fresh Wind was one of the songs that we sang earlier. The Holy Spirit had come upon Onesimus, and through the ministry of Paul, 
Onesimus became a child of God. You see, when Jesus Christ gets a hold of our lives, it changes our relationship with the community of believers. When Jesus Christ saves us from our sin and brings us into a place of righteousness, it changes our relationship in the community of believers. For Onesimus, he was a runaway slave who didn't know Jesus. And he probably fled straight to Paul in Rome because he wanted to seek asylum and he heard about this great leader who had gone all over the world planting churches. Probably heard about it at church at Philemon's house when he was a slave. And so he goes and seeks out Paul, certainly selfishly motivated, and Paul addresses him right where he's at and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of Onesimus' life and he becomes a follower of Jesus. He goes from being useless to being useful. If you will, if we close our time here today, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Earlier I mentioned how Epaphras was one of the, it was, a, it was one of Paul's close companions who was led to the Lord by Paul in Ephesus and then sent to Colossae to plant the church there. But two other churches that Epaphras was instrumentally involved in helping plant were the churches in the, the Hierapolis and the church in Laodicea. Everyone say Laodicea. I think that's how we pronounce it. Now look at verse 14 in Revelation chapter 3 with me. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. If you don't know anything about a little context about the book of Revelation, it's one of those books that's really intimidating when you, when you think about it or when you just hear things mentioned from it, especially like in the middle chunks. And there's just all sorts of things that are kind of hard to approach and hard to chew on. But when you, when you really look at it as a letter that was addressed to actual people in actual churches, and you think that there is a real context that this letter was, was, was being written for and, and, a, and a real people who the letter is being written to, it's a little bit easier to chew on the book of Revelation. So Jesus approaches John, and it's the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. The reason why John is in Patmos is because John, like the other apostles, wouldn't stop talking about Jesus and was causing all sorts of problems for, uh, for Jews in the Roman Empire and therefore was causing all sorts of problems for Romans in the Roman Empire. And all of these problems made their way to the desk of some pretty important people in Rome, including Caesar himself. And so the result of this was persecution and martyrdom for every single one of the apostles, including Paul, with the exception of one man. And that is who? The Apostle John. Not that they didn't try to do this. He went through a lot of the same things that the other apostles went through. In fact, the way that he, uh, the way that he suffered was, was, was similarly to, was, was in similar ways to how many of the other disciples were in fact martyred, being boiled having his, his skin ripped off his back, getting the lashes, being stoned. John went through things, and the only reason we learn why John, why John was kept alive by God is so that we could get the book of Revelation. It's not Revelations, it's Revelation. Okay, I was, growing up, I always called it Revelations. Maybe you don't do that. 
I did, but it's Revelation. So John is on this island. He's, he's exiled to this island as a prisoner in Patmos. Now it's like a destination site with a couple of resorts there, but it wasn't back then. And, and, and he's encountered by Jesus Christ, who appears to him and manifests himself in an incredible way that gets John's appearance and gets John's attention. And he says, John, write these things down to these seven churches. And one of the churches is the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, I will vomit you out of my mouth in the original language. There's a lot of conversation as to what the, the, the real application that can be gathered from this passage is. When Jesus says hot or cold, is he talking about on fire for the Lord or completely against the Lord? Maybe. Uh, there's some really cool archaeological insight when you look at the, the city of Laodicea. We already talked about Hierapolis. That's the other city that, that Epaphras went to. It's about six miles north, and they have all these really natural hot, they have a bunch of these natural hot springs. And a lot of archaeologists have, have said that there was aqueducts and siphons that they would use to get the hot spring water all the way from the Hierapolis to Laodicea. And then about nine miles northeast of Laodicea, there was um, another place called Colossae, which is the church that we're talking about today. And in Colossae, there is these uh, natural cold springs. And there's archaeological evidence that suggests that aqueducts were built and made to get water to Laodicea from both of these locations, hot water and cold water. There's debate about that, but the truth is, is that Laodicea was a city that didn't have a whole lot of access to water. They were, there was always a problem. That's well documented. Water was always a problem in Laodicea. And when they would get water... It would, a lot of times it would be in massive arrivements, whether it was rain or if it was some sort of a delivery, and a lot of that water would sort of run off to the bottom of the city and be collected in this swampy sort of area at the bottom of the city where it was really of no use to anyone. So I think really what Paul, or what, what John is being told to communicate from Jesus, John, write this, Jesus says, to the church in Laodicea. I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish you could be useful. We could sit here and think about the uses of hot water and the uses of cold water. I, I, would, I would summarize it with this. Cold water is refreshing. Hot water is healing. I wish, you were, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were useful. But because you're useless, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. See, when you know the way that Jesus addressed the churches in Asia Minor, these seven churches, with the, exception, with the exception of one church, Jesus had a lot of good things to say, but then he also had some condemning things to say to them as well. Look, you're doing this really well, but you're not doing this well at all. Adjust, or there's going to be consequences. That's kind of the, the rubric that Jesus followed for all seven churches, for the most part. There was one that only had good. There was one that only had bad. But for the most part, it was, 
you're doing this well, you're doing this poorly. If you keep doing that poorly, there's going to be some serious consequences. All right, go team. That's kind, of, that's kind of the heart in which Jesus is addressing these churches. And as we read it today, I think it's safe for us to assume that though those seven churches had specific commands, all seven churches were going to get the commands from the other six churches because there was just one letter written. And as we sit here today in 2023, we read all of these letters, including Philemon, Colossae, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, all of these things. I don't think this is an argument in any of your minds, but all of these things are for us to grasp and diligently apply to our lives. I wish you were useful, but because you are useless, I mean, this is pretty obvious. Jesus is saying, I wish you were useful, but because you're useless, I can't use you. Do you want to be used by God? That's a question. Do you want to be used by God? I hope so. I hope the answer to that question in your own heart and mind is yes, absolutely. If you turn your Bibles, it's the last verse that I want to talk about as we consider the gospel and consider our calling, consider our position. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So we see here Paul talks about vessels. And as I say that, um, maybe some of you are tempted to, to put yourself in the category like, ooh, I'm a gold vessel for sure. Maybe some of you are self-deprecating and you're like, I am a, I'm a wood vessel, not that useful. But look, look, look what Paul does here. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel fit for honorable use. So whatever, whether you're a gold or a silver vessel or whether you're a wood or a clay vessel, the thing that matters is what kind of content is in the vessel. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who specifically has occupied the vessel, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we can either choose to quench the Spirit of God and continue to be useless, which is exactly the type of people that Jesus was addressing in the church of Laodicea. You can choose to, to not open your Bibles. You can choose to not respond to the call of God and, and not be faithful to the commandments that he's clearly given us in Scripture. And you can continue, though you, you're technically in the family of God, you can, you can continue to be used um, or continue to be useless. If you quench the Spirit, if you grieve the Spirit of God, that's the dynamic. It's true in my life often, is, is way more often than I'm willing to admit. And I hope that's not the case for many of you, but I'm willing to say that in a room with about 250, 300 people, there are a lot of useless vessels that are occupying a chair right now. And again, I'm not saying this from a place of hatred or condemnation. I love you. I am often useless. But what we're called to do is to cleanse ourselves. Well, how, do we, how are we cleansed? We confess our sins to Jesus because he is faithful and just to purify us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we say, I'm sorry, Lord, but we don't stop there. We say, I'm sorry, Lord, but then we pick up our Bibles, we read it, and we say, yes, sir, Lord, I will obey. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he 
will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Everyone say, useful. It's the same word that Paul talks about, the same word that Paul uses. He was, Onesimus was was once useless, but now he's become useful to me. He will be a a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you ready? Are you ready for every good work? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works that no one can put so that no one can boast. But in verse 10, he says, for we are God's workmanship or handicraft or masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are not saved by the good things that we do. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ expressing faith in him so that we can do the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. When you don't walk in the good works that have been prepared for you, You are being disobedient and you are functioning like a useless vessel. You are functioning like lukewarm water that Jesus sees and spits out because he can't use you. But when we surrender, when we surrender to what the word of God tells us and put ourselves in a position where we say, thank you, Lord, that you have saved me. If you've not been saved, you can make that decision right now to receive the the gift of life and grace in Jesus Christ. But when we realize our standing before God, just like Onesimus was no longer a slave by worldly standards, but was a brother in the fellowship of believers, when we realize that we have been set free, truly free in Christ Jesus, that leaves us with the option to either yield to the Spirit so that we can be useful or to disregard the call of the Spirit, to keep our Bibles closed and to disobey, but continue to live a life that functionally speaking is useless for the kingdom of God and therefore useless overall. Because anything that you do that's not done for the Lord, and if it's not done with the help of the Lord, it's inherently useless. Unless the Lord builds the house It's in vain that his laborers strive. So let us be the type of laborers. Let us be the type of soldiers. Let us be the type of servants who would understand that by being obedient, we can be useful. Lord, help us to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Thank you that you've saved us. Help us to function in our calling so that we might be honorable vessels, useful for honorable use to see your kingdom furthered. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.